Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Over 250,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 25th episode, our guest is Mark Levin. But before we get to that, I need to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor. For you, the listeners of the Rob Burgess Show podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I usually only recommend one book each episode, but this time I have three. Dark Alliance, The CIA, The Contras, and The Crack Cocaine Explosion by Gary Webb. The Killing Game, selected writings by the author of Dark Alliance, also by Gary Webb, and edited by his son, Eric Webb. And Kill the Messenger, How the CIA's Crack Cocaine Controversy Destroyed Journalist Gary Webb, by Nick Shu. Whatever book you pick, you can exchange it at any time, you can cancel at any time, and the books are yours to keep. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show for your free audiobook. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available. Whether it's iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, or RSS, you can find links to everything on the official website, www.therobburgessshow.com. You can also find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Back to today's show. Mark Levin is an award-winning independent filmmaker who brings narrative and verite techniques together in his feature films, television series, and documentaries. Among the many honors for his work, he has won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival, the Camera d'Or at the Camera d'Or, three National Emmys, and four DuPont Columbia Awards. He is the director of such feature films as Slam, White Boys, and Brooklyn Babylon and documentary films such as CIA, America's Secret Warriors, Protocols of Zion, and most recently, Class Divide. He also directed the television series Brick City and Chicagoland, an episode of The Blues titled Godfathers and Sons, and three episodes of Law and Order. I first interviewed Mark and the subject of his documentary Freeway Crack in the System, Freeway Ricky Ross, last year. The film premiered on Al Jazeera America, and I was lucky enough to screen the film prior to its release. Here's the movie's trailer. You know how they say that everybody has a purpose in life? Well, at one time I felt that selling cocaine was my purpose. We were starving, just looking for a way to, to succeed. 
The first time I seen rock cocaine was 1980. Murder rate was sky high. South of the 10 freeway was kind of a no man's land. So, you know, we're selling it to the blacks. So you go to these neighborhoods, you, there's no cops, you can sell it where you want, and when they start killing each other, nobody cares. I was going through like a million dollars worth of drugs just about every day. That's like gold. We can make a fortune. He was maybe the biggest guy in LA. Rick, Rick, Freeway Rick. Freeway Rick was getting his dope from a very big operator. I think we're into something that's bigger than us, something we really can't deal with. They had been trafficking on behalf of the United States government. She could prove what she was saying. The story was mind-boggling. When I was young, let me tell you how it was when I come from. As I've said before, no drug network will remain alive. There's a lot of people who think that, you know, I made that whole thing up. What they don't realize is the CIA admitted it. See, I didn't know until I was sitting in prison how valuable an education was. Yeah, drugs suck. Drugs are really bad. But the drug war is worse. You want to know a version of health? Be the only guy playing straight in a dirty card game. And that's what the drug war is. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Me being here is defying all odds. People don't get federal life sentences and beat them. We've been spending billions and billions and billions of dollars every year on this war on drugs to find out that the government was involved. That's pretty astonishing. Crack in the system. This is Los Angeles. Even if the government just turned a blind eye and didn't do anything about it, then you have to start questioning the whole system. I first became aware of the story of Freeway Ricky Ross in 2008 when it was revealed that not only was the rapper calling himself Rick Ross actually named William Roberts, but Roberts had also been a correctional officer in Florida. I then went on to read the late Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Gary Webb's seminal series Dark Alliance in which he connected the dots between Ross, who was being supplied with cocaine by Nicaraguans raising money for the CIA-backed Contras through drug sales. Webb's life story was also told in the Jeremy Renner starring dramatic film Kill the Messenger based on the book of the same name. July 21st, Levin's film Freeway Crack in the System was nominated for an Emmy Award in the Outstanding Investigative Journalism Long Form category. The winners will be announced during the awards ceremony September 21st in New York City. And now on to the show. Hey, Mark, it's Rob. Hey, Rob, how are you? Oh, good. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. No problem. Hold on. Let me just uh, close the door here. Okay. There we go. Okay. Uh, First of all, congratulations on the Emmy nomination. That's huge. Yes, it is. Uh, It was somewhat of a surprise, I have to admit, in that... um, the television network Al Jazeera America doesn't even exist anymore. Right, yeah, I saw that. So, I'm um, not aware that um, it had even been submitted for consideration, huh. since considering the, the network went down, but um, luckily it was. So, yeah, it was a great surprise. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it looks like you got some pretty stiff competition from those uh, Frontline episodes. Uh, so, yep, yeah. true. <laughs> Frontline is the, uh, I guess, the king of uh, investigative, long-form investigative documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been doing it for years. In fact, I did a, 
the front line probably 30 years ago mm. inside the jury. First jury deliberation ever recorded. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That. So, uh, no, they are stiff competition, and it's it's a tremendous series. Yeah, absolutely. Does it feel like old hat since you've already won Emmys before? I'm sure it's still exciting every time you get nominated for something like this. Yeah, especially this one, since this was kind of uh, a personal journey uh, and uh, against a lot of odds and a lot of, uh, um, you know, crazy situations. It was very gratifying. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and that's kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next. I mean, last time we talked, uh, you kind of mentioned that this was a project, or you've really been working on this for for 30 years now, and in some ways you, of course, were there for the Iron Contra hearings, and uh, you've been kind of following this for years and years. So does this feel like kind of tying that all together, you know, finally? Yeah, that is a it is a great feeling of both uh, vindication for uh, you know not only this film but my interest in kind of how the war on drugs has impacted so many lives here and and, and really the American experience uh, and uh, you know some of the sources of it uh, that you know haven't really been elucidated and uh, examined. And, uh, you know, so it does. It feels like uh, kind of coming full circle. Mm-hmm. And uh, getting the validation for that is, is uh, with just a nomination, is very gratifying. There's no doubt. And then, you know, when you look at the political landscape, uh, obviously there's been tremendous movement, not enough, as we saw with the DEA, mm-hmm. you know, kind of at least opening up to a little more medical marijuana um, research, but still the idea that it's still in this year of 2016 classified as a uh, dangerous drug along with heroin and cocaine is is insane. Right. Uh, So, and, you know, look at the ballot coming up in November, uh, you know, in terms of uh, recreational use of marijuana, especially in California, Mm -hmm. uh, and then the movement to get rid of mandatory minimums or reconsider them, uh, Mm -hmm. the the clemency from the White House for a lot of uh, nonviolent drug uh, prisoners who are facing life behind bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel that in many ways the there's a mainstreaming of the simple idea that the war on drugs is a disaster, a mm-hmm. failure. It's time to move on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and if you want to even take it from if you're a conservative person, you know, this is just a giant waste of, of talent and money and resources. So if you even want to look at it from the, the other side of the political spectrum, uh, you know, there, there's that argument to be made, too. You know, there's people like Ron Paul that are even talking about that on, on the right. So it's not just a left-right thing. I think it kind of cuts across the political spectrum now, hopefully. so. I think you're absolutely right. In fact... Uh, if you saw Morning Joe yesterday, there was a gentleman on that, that I've kind of been talking to, Weldon Angelos, mm. um, who was uh, got out because of uh, the president's intervention, but mm-hmm. was of, uh, busted for you know a small amount of marijuana and got an insane sentence. He was involved in the hip-hop world with some of the characters, actually, we dealt with on Freeway, uh, mm-hmm. Snoop, and 
some of the other characters, and, and, and he's teamed up with the Koch brothers. Mm. Uh, the Koch brothers uh, were their foundation uh, was part of uh, championing his case and and uh, others. Uh, like you say, that it's it's uh, an unusual alliance of the ACLU and, mm. and, and the Koch brothers foundation uh, and Ron Paul and Cory Booker. Uh, so that all of that, you know, is is feels like wow. This, you know, as a me as a, as a child of the '60s, that finally, 40 years later, we're finally coming to our senses. But I still think that you know the value of Freeway and, and certainly the, the validation just of the nomination, especially in this category, which is a very prestigious, you know, investigative journalism. Oh yeah, is that the, that the real story or or part of the story, key parts of it, still are not you know, fully known or understood. Mm -hmm. And even in this campaign, you know, we've seen like the Black Lives Matter movement certainly, uh, you know, raise the issue of of the Clinton administration in the Mm -hmm. 90s. Uh, And, uh, you know, some of of their contribution to mass incarceration, Mm -hmm. which is definitely true. But that was the cherry on the cake. (laughs) Uh, You know, that was not the source. You Uh got to go back to, you know, where we went back to to really the Reagan right. administration's escalation mm-hmm. and, and kind of putting the whole war on drugs on steroids. Oh yeah, uh, and the alliances made then. That's where the mandatory minimums started. That's where the crack uh, cocaine disparity and, and mm-hmm. panic started. Uh, so you know, Clinton just kind of uh, went along with that mm-hmm. uh, with the crime bill. Uh, and, but that that's not how it started. That's not how it blew up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, if anything, Clinton was just kind of, you know, wherever they say triangulating, trying to take the, you know, conservative position before it could be used against him in that way. It's like, you're not going to call me soft on crime. I'll be just as hard as everyone else. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, it's been interesting. I mean, you know, we had screened the film uh, up in Harlem at the Maisel Center, brought Uh it down to Selma, you know, screened it at at, at various places. And, And one of the interesting thing was some of the young activists uh, kind of, wow, you know, mm-hmm. they, they didn't fully know right. the story. Right. Uh, and uh, it was an eye-opener. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think in that sense, going back to your original question, this validation, you know, gives the film a kind of timelessness, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that it can now be, you know, whatever happens in terms of who wins, it can now be looked back on as, you know, you want to understand these last 30 or 40 years, this whole war on drugs, this mass incarceration, this mm-hmm. this this kind of declaring war on our own people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to understand this story. Yeah, this is one of uh, I guess what I would call kind of the fundamental stories. Oh, of, yeah. of that era. Absolutely, and it's it's interesting. You know, you go back to Gary Webb's reporting, and, and he was seen as such an outlier when when he first kind of brought all these things to the light. But you know, now it's like you, you even talk about this in the film a little bit. You're, you have a clip of him talking about this. You know, the CIA, by their own admission, even said it was worse than, than he even said it was. You know, so it was like he was even understating how much. Uh, they had in it so it's it's like now it's just kind of seen as you know he was yeah he was right i mean maybe you could quibble with you know he didn't do this or that in in the original uh, dark alliance series but his main point was was more than correct and and we see that today so i think that's very prescient so absolutely look uh, um 
you know, I hope this helps, uh, you know, keep Gary's memory alive, keep his work alive, because uh, whatever uh, minor flaws there might be in Dark Alliance, I think it's a seminal work uh, that anybody interested in this era and in understanding it, um, you know, needs to read. Uh, and... Uh, you know, as I told you originally, I, I knew Gary not, mm-hmm. you know, not well, but knew him, respected him, liked the time I spent with him, and felt, you know, just devastated uh, about his death. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that part of the motivation was, uh, you know, somewhere uh, that somebody's got to kind of come back and, and tell the story that he told and, and got condemned for and, and, and re-litigated. Uh, you know, I wrote a blog, I think, after the Washington Post came out, you know, just trying to, uh, when Kill the Messenger came mm-hmm. out. So, yeah, no, I think think, think Gary was uh, way ahead of uh, on this story and deserves tremendous credit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, now, like you just said, we, we, we see a mainstreaming from left, right, mm-hmm. you know, from all positions. Uh, that uh, no one, no one is even defending this thing anymore. It's right. Much more how we we make a transition. And the other thing is, I think in the world we're now in, the war on terror has obviously kind of replaced the war on drugs. Another war on a noun. So. <laughs> <laughs> Another war on a noun. That's a good one. And. Uh, I think that one thing we've come to see clear in the war on terror is that when you make alliances, like that's part of the madness of, you know, mm-hmm. fighting ISIS, the Syrian civil war, the, right. the Iraqi situation, you know, you, you, you're dealing with uh, some very nefarious characters mm-hmm. and the blowback uh, is is something that can't be ignored. And now we're just a little more aware, we're less naive mm-hmm. than the idea that, oh my God, we're dealing with, you know, drug dealers and drug traffickers. Picante, uh and uh, you know the the the, the Medellin cartel, the Cali cartel, and that's impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, well, you know, our battle was the Cold War and and anti-communism and and whoever you know kind of uh, fit those credentials. We overlooked a lot more, but we were naive. No, we would never do that. We would never be in bed with people like that. Now, I think there's a sober, more realistic look that, my God, sometimes we do have to ally ourselves Mm -hmm. with the people that really, uh, you know, aren't savory, but uh, they're the enemy of our enemies. Uh, But we're a little more realistic about it, although still trying to figure out the blowback because, you know, Al-Qaeda itself was, you know, the Mujahideen. I yeah. mean, if you think about it, you know, that goes back to the Reagan era also, <laughs> the war on drugs also in terms of the opium coming out of right. Southeast Asia and our support uh, for bin Laden sure. and some of these uh, jihadists because the enemy then was the Soviet Union. <laughs> right, right. It was just a different, you know, we were like, oh, you can help us with this other guy. Oh, well, that other guy's gone. Now you're the enemy. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and look, that's part of the real world. I think we're more realistic about that mm-hmm. now. You right. Know? Um, but uh, he's still unwilling to understand kind of how we helped 
create and facilitate, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of uh, drug war mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and you know, just the, the flow of drugs into this country. Right. Um, well, I don't know if you've seen, if you've seen that uh, Netflix series, Narcos, I assume. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, of course. Um, of course. The thing that struck me with that was it's like, yes, you know, you can, you can kind of focus in on, on this one story, but if you think about it, if he wasn't there, there would have just been someone else that would have served that same need. So the, the, the underlying problem really doesn't change. You know, the demand for these drugs from America during the height of the drug war is still still so high. It's it's like, you know, you can take this one guy down, but, you know, it's not like people in Miami are going to stop wanting cocaine. So, you know, it's, it's exactly. like, you know, exactly. you still have the underlying problems. So. Exactly. And that's what's so fascinating about the, the drug war, the drug uh, business, uh, the drug culture, mm-hmm. is in many ways, uh, since it's black market, it's illegal, uh, mm-hmm. it's underground, it's a kind of pure distillation of, of how kind of, uh, I guess what you would call primitive capitalism works, right. pirate capitalism, yeah. you know, is, is this is it, and, uh-huh. and it's the perfect product because you always need more. In other words, the, the, the consumer and the consumer fever that, you know, mm-hmm. the global economy, the so-called capitalist consumer global economy feeds on. Right. is that we need to, you know, buy consumer goods. Yeah. It's all fine and well um, if people can at least make a wage to afford them. But the planned obsolescence that goes in, in other <laughs> words, that, hey, your iPhone is done now, don't don't get it fixed, buy something <laughs> new, you know, that that is so built into the, the whole marketing and the psychology of right. our culture that more, 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 new, 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 higher, higher, higher. Mm-hmm. And so addiction, you could say, in that sense, is like kind of the social disease mm-hmm. of advanced capitalism. Uh, yeah. Because you're basically acting out uh, the very ethos of, I need more. Yeah. I need to get higher. <laughs> I need more. Exactly. Uh, so, and then you see, you know, kind of uh, the, the power that it's had. Mm-hmm. Um so it, it, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And then the scary thing is if we keep it illegal is we force that side of the underground economy and the criminal economy into the arms of the terror world. Yeah, you know? precisely. Uh, and that's a, a very scary uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, concept of them teaming up as they have in certain places, working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so... You know, that's why it is interesting to see this realignment on both right and left kind of reevaluating, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, our whole approach to the war on drugs. Oh, definitely. Yeah, actually, it's funny you say that because a few weeks ago I actually interviewed a guy named Jeff Smith who uh, you may, I don't know if you've seen this documentary, uh, it was from 2006, it was called Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore? I don't know if you've seen that one. I've not seen that. Okay. Uh, he was a Missouri uh, politician. He was trying to get elected to... Uh, uh, the Congress, and he, he narrowly failed. But anyway, he got caught up in an obstruction of a justice case, and he uh, eventually went to prison uh, for a year, and he wrote a book called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. Um, anyway, he, he talked a little bit about exactly what you're saying. When he was in prison, he kind of observed this uh, very pure form of capitalism, and you know, he was saying, you know, the, the people that were in prison in this underground economy, they're using all the same, you know, uh, things that a, that a legitimate 
business would use, but they're just not using the same names for it. It's like, you know, he was saying Adam Smith would be so proud, you know, because it's like, does the, the, you know, there's product testing, there's, there's launch, you know, there's rollout, you know, all this kind of stuff that you, in the straight business world, but it's just, it's been, like you said, shoved into this underground economy. And it's not like the need for it goes away. It just, you know, the same business principles just apply in a more, you know, underground way. So. Well, you know, that makes me think of uh, another thing, uh, Mike Moringa. Mm-hmm. who's a producer on Freeway, uh, has been involved with the NAACP in uh, a whole new campaign which mm-hmm. comes out of this realignment, which is to uh, advocate for and lobby for African Americans to be given an opportunity in the legal cannabis business. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, the position being that so many young African American males obviously have been imprisoned over the last 30 years in the war on drugs, you know, for these extremely long sentences. Mm -hmm. And here we are on the kind of the verge of legalizing marijuana recreationally. Mm -hmm. You know, it's already Colorado and Washington, and now if obviously California goes in November, that's huge. And uh, uh, Mike is working, as I said, with uh, the NAACP saying, you know, the cannabis, the legal cannabis business, both medical and recreational, is all white. And where are the African-American eyes? And, uh, you know, give us a shot. Yeah, you know? right. uh, so that's uh, an interesting uh, mm-hmm. element. And then, of course, the mass incarceration element uh, that the war on drugs was such a big driver uh, behind, mm-hmm. filling our prisons, uh, stripping um urban communities of so many young, talented people mm-hmm. who may, you know, well have made mistakes. Uh, but um, the years that we've put away, the millions and millions that we've spent just locking people up, mm-hmm. uh, it's such a waste it of is. human capital mm-hmm. uh, and has only exacerbated the, um, you know, collapse of our inner city communities, the mm-hmm. increased uh, alienation between the citizens of color and law enforcement mm-hmm. you know that we see being acted out in the last you know few years and the videos of, of cops shooting mm-hmm. black men and, right. and and then people shooting cops uh, you know and the militarization of our police oh, yeah. and the the occupation of inner city communities and obviously as is mentioned in freeway uh, mm-hmm. there's that scene where the the man says you know a lot of um, reputable African American leaders supported the war on drugs mm-hmm. and, and were major advocates mm-hmm. for uh, some of the harsh uh, sentences, etc. Uh, but but now we've come to realize that uh, drugs are bad, but mm-hmm. the but the war on drugs is worse. Yeah, and the devastation it's caused, uh, uh, and the waste, uh, you know, in this punitive approach instead of the the public health approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, on all those levels, the you know to, the nomination is just a stamp of approval and legitimacy, mm-hmm. and again because it's investigative journalism credibility mm-hmm. that uh, here's something that as we move forward try to figure mm-hmm. out how to get out of that one uh, and try to understand how the hell we ever got into it. Hopefully, this will be one of the significant 
films, documentaries that right. people refer to and Absolutely. look at. Well, I, I think it'll definitely be proven that way. Uh, that's something else I wanted to ask you about, because I feel like a, a lot of times with documentary film, uh, you know, there there is maybe a blurring of the line between, you know, there's there's this idea of quote-unquote objective journalism, um, and of course, you know, uh, talking to you, I know you have a, a point of view, but you're still basing this on, on facts and, and the research you've done and all that. Uh, do you think that there's a... a I, I don't know how to say it exactly, but a line between uh, pure journalism and documentary film, because I do feel like that there is a little bit of a difference between the two sometimes. I know that sometimes it can just be, you know, presenting facts, but there is this idea of, oh, you know, the presenter has to be objective and they can't have a point of view, but I don't. that seems like a little bit of a construct to me in some ways. So. I agree. Uh, I mean, the he said, she said, uh, which I would call faux objectivity, mm-hmm. and, you know, certainly apparent when, you know, you start seeing people trying to do that in the presidential campaign (laughs) with, you know, oh, Trump said this bad thing or lied like this and then, but Hillary did this and and trying to create an equivalency because you've got to be so-called objective. I don't think that's objective. Mm -hmm. That's faux objectivity. That's that's a fraud. Uh, I think, look, there are many forms of journalism, just as there are many forms of documentary. The, the, The powerful form of journalism is a it certainly comes out of when, again, I came of age, uh, this uh, more personalized uh, novelistic nonfiction that, uh, you know, Truman Capote and uh, Norman Mailer and Tom Wolfe, uh, you know, kind of bringing the, the novel's tools mm-hmm. uh, to nonfiction and that you could report, uh, but not in a just he said, she said way. And that facts are, are certainly important, but but how to frame those facts, how, how to give it a point of view mm-hmm. uh, doesn't uh, take away, uh, in any, if anything, it can make it more compelling, more powerful, more relatable. Right. Uh, and that's new journalism. And uh, I feel that is, uh, you know, totally valid from gonzo journalism yeah. of Hunter Thompson yep. uh, right to Frank Rich today or, mm-hmm. or, or other journalists uh, but who are giving you a point of view uh, but it's 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 you know they're not ignoring facts like Fox News mm-hmm. uh, which pretends to be objective which is a joke <laughs> uh, but uh, and then in the documentary world uh, I mean this is such a golden age of documentaries mm-hmm. you know documentaries now span um, every form uh, from uh, you know, kind of uh, the the hybrids like the Jinx to uh, the making of the murderer or, mm-hmm. or the ESPN series on OJ, mm-hmm. which uses that as a way of looking at the much larger issues of race in America. Um, so uh, I think that documentary form has been liberated and in many ways has been um, thrust into the limelight because of some of the collapse of print journalism mm-hmm. and because the movie business uh, really has moved into, you know, kind of the video game superhero genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's left a kind of more serious, character-driven, uh, issue oriented storytelling to both uh, serial TV uh, and documentaries. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, how do you synthesize all this information mm-hmm. where we live, where we're overwhelmed? Uh, we 
we live in a society where you're just overwhelmed with information. How do you curate it? How do you synthesize it, if all this information and facts, into something that resembles knowledge, you know, like, and, and, and uh, some sense of, of wisdom, or, or what, what does it all mean? Right. Uh, and to do that, you have to have an interpretive uh, element. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think that this is a, you know, that, that documentaries are no longer uh, just kind of limited to a reporter saying, um, you know, we're going to give you this side of uh, the war on drugs and now we're going to go over to the other side and, and tell you, you know, why drugs are so bad or this is your brain on drugs and, and just kind of walking you back and forth but never really digging in and trying to understand uh, what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I didn't quite you mentioned Hunter Thompson because one of my favorite quotes from him is uh, if you want objective journalism the the box scores are about the best place you can look and then everywhere else you don't look for it anywhere else because that's the pure information and then everywhere else is a point of view even if they don't say point of view you know everything else has a point of view whether they announce it or not so um, yeah I definitely agree with that um, so uh, you you screen this at the at Selma right during the uh, d- during the fiftieth um, uh, anniversary of Bloody Sunday right right uh, how was that received I have to imagine that was a pretty poignant uh, moment there on the Edmund Pettus Bridge that I saw you taking a picture of there so yeah that was very powerful uh, just to be there really right uh, and to think. Uh, you know, of, of of this kind of struggle, I guess it 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 struck a personal nerve in me, and that as a uh, as a kid, really, you know, mm-hmm. my parents brought me to the march on Washington. Oh wow! Uh, and, and as I say, I was just a kid, but you know, to kind of try to close my eyes and think back to that hot day mm-hmm. where my parents dragged myself and my sisters uh, down to, you know, that famous moment in Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, and here, you know, all these years later, um, and, and, you know, kind of just thinking about both the grand picture of, uh, you know, that progress has been made. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it is incredible. I never thought I would live to see an African-American president. I have to admit right. that. Uh, but then also thinking on the personal level of, uh, of those who've gone down and sacrificed. And uh, just like the three civil rights workers, you know, um, that Cheney Goodman and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my mother was very close friends with Carolyn Goodman, who was the mother mm-hmm. of one of those uh, who was tortured and killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, uh, so many others just you know whether it's drug overdoses, people sent away uh, in in prison for years. Uh, you know, so it was poignant. Mm-hmm. It was it was poignant to just be in the midst of all of that and. Uh, you know, it was, again, I was glad the film kind of just led me in that direction. Right, absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned Cory Booker a little bit, uh, and you, of course, directed the series Brick City. Uh, he's, of course, his political star has only risen since then. Uh, I have to imagine you probably saw that uh, coming just based on the, you know, the adroitness he kind of, you know, had in uh, in your documentary there. What's it been like to watch him uh, kind of rise up uh, the political ranks here? Well, I have to say,
say when I saw the Democratic convention in his speech, I guess it was either Monday or uh -huh. Tuesday, uh, I was... Uh, just emailing a number of people. I mean, the first part of it, I thought, you know, it was there's Corey, he's doing his thing, and then it was almost like he lifted off. Yeah. He, like, blasted off right. uh, for, for, like, the last part of it. The mm -hmm. guy was, like, you know, just a rocket ship. Yeah. And, uh, you know, was going back and forth with a number of people, like, my God, he's lighting the sky up, and mm -hmm. uh, is he going to run for president? Yeah. And, uh, no, he's, he's a bright star. Of course, then Michelle Obama came on, yeah, and, and she eclipsed everything. I mean, she uh, wiped the floor with everyone at that she point. She was just so. unbelievable. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, superstar. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, Corey is, uh, no, I, 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 it's fascinating to watch and uh, to see. Uh, I think he, he has a lot to offer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the interesting things is how he's made this issue, you know, the war on drugs, mass incarceration, uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, this is been uh, at the center of uh, his, you know, short time in the Senate, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's it's shaped by what he witnessed as mayor of uh, um, Brick City, Newark, mm -hmm. you know, and, and seeing the devastation uh, that drugs, both the drug trade, the gang scene, the violence, the black-on-black -black violence, mm -hmm. and then at the same time, the criminal justice system, uh, how broken it is, uh, and how they kind of feed each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he knows it. Uh, I mean, his, his house, uh, you know, where he lived when he was mayor, uh, was like right in the hood. Mm -hmm. uh, so he saw it. Right. And, um, you know, it's great that there is somebody that knows first person um, mm -hmm. like he does, that at least is part of this discussion, part of this debate. Uh, and, uh, no, I, I often think back to uh, 2008. I was with Corey when Obama was elected, mm -hmm. and that was just such an epic moment, mm -hmm. unforgettable moment. Uh, and, you know, it was amazing. I just happened to be with him. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that evening. No, I, I'm, you know, uh, we're still in touch. And uh, uh, I think uh, certainly if Hillary gets elected, mm -hmm. uh, I would certainly look for Corey to, you know, be playing even a larger role. Oh, yeah. You know, in, in terms of both uh, a, a future administration and, and just uh, as a senator. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, to kind of bring it back to mass incarceration a little bit, um, I, I don't know if you have you read that report from the Mother Jones reporter who uh, went undercover working at a private prison here recently? Is that, no, I, is that the one where uh, private prisons uh, have more problems, more violence? Uh -huh. I, I, I saw the headline, I haven't yeah. read it yet, but again, you know, and I want to read it, oh, yeah. because that you know, goes to the heart of, mm -hmm. I think, this whole question of privatization. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 this goes to the, the foundation of the Republican myth mm -hmm. that the marketplace is the answer for everything and that yeah. we don't need government. Right. That the profit motive can substitute. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, insanity. It's yeah. insanity when it comes to education. It's insanity when it comes to health care. Mm -hmm. And it's insanity when it comes to criminal justice. That right. You're putting the profit motive as the driver uh, and you think it's going to deliver uh, justice or health or education. Uh, and uh, so I do want to read that. Oh, yeah. 
but um, I, I just wish, you know, when 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 I hear this mantra repeated over and over again, you know, we don't need government, we don't need government regulations, we don't need government programs, we don't need government to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see what happens. And look, I'm a small business person, so you don't have to preach to me about entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. about being independent, about hating bureaucracies, whether it's government bureaucracies or corporate bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a true believer, uh, but uh, the need for regulations that, that, that give you the rules of the game mm-hmm. uh, and the need for for certain areas of our life not to be driven by the profit motive in the marketplace, but by the idea of service, by right. the idea of, of helping people or protecting people or keeping people safe. You have to save some part of what I would call the common ground, the common good, the mm-hmm. commons. Uh, that citizens agree uh, we all collectively are responsible for and it's not just a a business Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to read that um, but uh, I feel just from the little I've seen uh, it confirms um, uh, the critique that the marketplace is certainly not the answer when it comes to our prison issues. Yeah, when you're absolutely right, tying the profit motive to things like that, and, and in the you know Mother Jones piece, he talks a little bit about how these private prisons actually get to charge the government extra if these cells aren't filled. So it's like they view these uh, prisoners not as prisoners, but as customers. And if they don't have enough customers, then they have to make up their their profit margins uh, elsewhere. And it's like, well, is this really about? you know, keeping people safe, or is this just about filling the prisons because you have a quota to fill? So Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, that's, that, and that's, look, again, there are millions of regulations that are probably outdated, and government needs to be streamlined mm-hmm. and made more efficient and made more entrepreneurial and less bureaucratic, as, as does corporate America. Right. Uh, the same thing. Uh, but to confuse that, with uh, and to not educate and and kind of have a culture that reinforces that there's something noble about public service, civil service, uh, working, uh, whether it's as a, a, a corrections officer or as a teacher or as a healthcare worker, you know, that there's something noble about helping people, keeping people safe, trying to rehabilitate people, uh, and that it's not just all fame and fortune uh, mm-hmm. and celebrity. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, so... You know that that uh, I want to take a look at that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, to kind of shift gears a little bit, I know you also directed uh, Chicago Land, um, and Chicago has just seen so much uh, gun violence. And you know, I live in Indiana, and I know we've been kind of implicated as far as uh, you know, we kind of supply a lot of the guns uh, for that crisis. You know, we have pretty lax gun laws compared to uh, Chicago, and people just bring them across here. Um, after making that document. Documentary. Uh, what solutions do you see to that crisis that's happening in Chicago with with all the violence? You know, people point to black on black crime, but then of course you've got uh, problems with the police in Chicago, as, as we've all seen from the from the videos um, that have come out. Uh, what 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 are your you know what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, first of all, let me say this, that this year has been, I mean, you brought up Chicago and, and then Brick City both. Mm-hmm. One of the sad things, and it just shows you how close and how real this is, mm-hmm. is two of the main characters. One of the main characters in Brick City, Creep, mm-hmm. who was part of the Jada Creep, uh, kind of Romeo and Juliet couple. Uh-huh. And then Lee McCollum in um, Chicagoland, who was uh, went to Finger High and was somebody that uh, Liz Dozier, the main character, you know, was very close to. Both Creep and, and Lee were, were killed, mm. um, both of them, um, by, um, you know, guns. Mm-hmm. Creep was shot. Uh, and killed on the street and still unsolved and Lee was mm. shot killed on the street wow uh, still unsolved mm-hmm. and um, you know at the funeral of Creep uh, couldn't help feeling that you know I wasn't just a, a journalist or a filmmaker or a film director mm-hmm. I was just I was a friend a colleague and uh, it was just thinking about other people I, I saw there, and Jada and, and the kids, how many funerals they've gone to, mm. how much a part of their life, you know, this ritual of death is. It's, it's incredibly sobering, and uh, it's uh, difficult to fathom because both of them had tremendous potential. Both of them had a variety of opportunities to try to move on people helping them and, and, re- and at least reaching out and offering a hand. And yet, um, when things go wrong and, 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 and times get tough, it's just hard to comprehend the pull back into the hood mm-hmm. uh, and into the street mm-hmm. where, um, for all the, the, the threats and danger, uh, I guess there's some sense of, of knowing your you know, who you are and, and that you're still a man maybe in, in, in your own eyes. I mean, I also have been working uh, a bit with Jeff Hobbs, who's the author of the book um, uh, The Short Tragic Life of Robert Peace, which is uh, quite a powerful book about a young man from Newark mm-hmm. um, who had tremendous talent and got a scholarship to Yale but mm-hmm. had a secret street life and Ended up getting shot, and killed, also right outside Newark. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's so complicated. How? How? I mean, I think the gun thing is, you know, insane. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that that this idea that you know the only way to you know deal with a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, mm-hmm. and that is very much the irony. That's the NRA mantra. Mm-hmm. Uh, the irony is that is the mantra of gang life. Mm. Uh, that is very much the mantra of mm. growing up in the hood, which is I'd rather go away for five years getting caught with a gun than be buried six feet under. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have my gat on me, you know, look what happened to Creep. Look mm-hmm. what happened to Lee. Right. It's not going to happen to me. So, so, so that's the irony is that even if the guns are illegal, purchased, coming over from Indiana, wherever, mm-hmm. um, they, they buy into the same attitude that, you, you know, forget the police, forget everybody. It's it's a vigilante justice, and, uh, you know, uh, we got one of them. They're coming after us. I got to have my gun at all times. Mm-hmm. And if uh, 
some innocent people are killed, uh, you know, uh, bystanders or in the crossfire, so be it. Uh, so there's so many levels from the gun issue to the mental health issue of, of growing up in communities where, where, where they're dealing with what they call toxic stress, mm. which was very much Fenger High School, uh, mm. where over half the students were homeless. Mm. You know, so, I mean, you're coming to school, you know, you're not even sure where you're going to sleep. You're not even sure, you know, you're going to have a, a, another meal. You, you're basically, you know, getting your, your food from the school cafeteria. Uh, it's hard to think about studying and, and, and uh, focusing on uh, your education when you're not sure you're going to be able to walk home and, and whether you're going to get shot or not because you've got to cross some gang territory. Um, and you saw a friend of yours shot down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the and that and that that toxic stress uh, actually changes the brain mm-hmm. and it actually uh, affects decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you know, there's the mental health issue. There's the education poverty. Mm-hmm. This so it's 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 so multi leveled. But the idea of arming everybody on top of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I remember, you know, okay, even letting terrorists get guns, I mean, this is insanity. And we can't even, you know, we cannot even deal with that. And that was like uh, two months ago, three months ago, right. Trump was going to sit down with the NRA. Yeah, whatever happened on that one after Orlando, uh-huh. and, you know, we, we've got to close the loophole so people right. on the terrorist watch list can't buy guns, and right. they still can. And even in the ISIS magazine, they, they say, you know, we haven't been able to penetrate the U.S. with our ourselves and our facilitators, but we don't really have to because America's crazy. Anybody can buy a military weapon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, you you, you, you create these to- this toxic environment and then you throw all these guns in. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean there wouldn't be violence or that people couldn't use bats or knives or their fists, uh, you mm-hmm. know, but still, when you give them automatic weapons... Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, the gun madness is, is frightening. And mm-hmm. Chicago is an example of it. But there's a culture. There's both a culture in the hood. There's a culture with the police, like mm-hmm. that you've brought up and now we're all aware of, where it's basically a war. Mm-hmm. It's not protect and serve. Uh, and uh, all of that has kind of somehow Chicago has also embraced as part of its own history, the gangster mentality mm-hmm. is very much just a part of kind of the Chicago identity, you know, from Al Capone on, mm-hmm. that, that there is this kind of outlaw gangster, you know, sensibility somehow in the water there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, uh, it's daunting, but I think the, and it's very segregated, uh, one of the most segregated big cities, uh, you know, uh, in in the country, uh, the south side and the, and the west side, uh, just totally separated from downtown and the north. Um, but I think New York and L.A. have shown that you can turn these things around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think of where New York was at in 90, uh, with, you know, over 2,000 murders oh, yeah. a year, the peak right. of the crack era, you know, going mm-hmm. back to Freeway and, and, and the film and the, and the violence that did come out of the crack era, mm-hmm. um, both the gang violence and drug violence and, and, and the uh, militarizing of our police, uh, 
you you see a tremendous turnaround in New York. You see Los Angeles, which was you know kind of uh, totally out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's police culture has to be has to be changed, and right. that's not easy. That's easier said than done. And and part of doing Chicagoland, you know, Gary McCarthy went down uh, because of the video and because of mm-hmm. uh, of, of some of. Uh, the misbehavior of the Chicago police, mm-hmm. but uh, I know Gary, you know, from Brick City and Newark, and then followed him to Chicago, and uh, I feel that that that. that he kind of became a fall guy, mm. you know, for the mayor, um, and that uh, whatever mistakes were made, I think that what Gary was was in that classic place between a rock and a hard mm-hmm. place in terms of when you start trying to change the police, there's tremendous resistance within oh, yeah. the rank and file, and you've got the the, the, the union you're dealing with, oh, and your yeah. management, and you, and you need you want the rank and file, you know, officers and the detectives, you want them on your side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do deserve, uh, you know, um, a good wage and, and to make a good living, uh, putting their life on the line. And you're always afraid you push too far in terms of pushing forward and, 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 and you're going to kind of de-escalating some of uh, kind of uh, the militaristic tactics that you might lose them mm-hmm. uh, and they'll turn on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, it's a tricky, tough line, how to reform law enforcement, which is a huge issue today. Yeah. Huge issue. And I think going back to the war on drugs, that, that that's, that's key in this ingredient, you know, because mm-hmm. so much resources has been spent on, 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 you know, kind of picking up small-time drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of violence in the drug trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt about it um, that, you know, if we could, if, if we could get that off to the side so we could focus, you know, so that if, if, if drugs were legal and it's, it's more of a public health crisis, just as nicotine is and, and alcohol is, which we all know uh, can be abused and be incredibly uh, destructive. Uh, but, but, we, but there's not a, a, an underground economy that we have right. spent so much resources and so much violence comes out of, uh, then to be able to focus on uh, both the community policing of, of establishing real relationships in the community, knowing mm-hmm. your community, focusing on violent crime, uh, it's, 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 it runs deep. And I think that just emerging from, going back to where we started, this idea that the war on drugs, you know, was kind of the primary driver mm-hmm. of law enforcement, which right. really in the 80s started, uh, and it was the primary funder, you know, which go together, mm-hmm. you know, that this is where we got our money, this is where we get our equipment, this yeah. is where we get our, you know, our tanks, our, you know, this military equipment. Um, so we know that that is a fundamental crisis we're facing now, how to reform law enforcement, how to make it um, so that the community sees it as protecting and serving it and not as being occupied mm-hmm. uh, and at war with it. Um, and in Chicago, that is a real challenge. When you look at the history of torture, racism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bossism, corruption. Uh, so Gary had a huge, huge uh, 
challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel bad that this tragedy happened on his watch. I, I don't really know, um, you know, kind of the inside story of how it unfolded. We were already out of town. Mm-hmm. You know, what I will say about Chicagoland is we got a lot of flack for focusing on the violence, mm-hmm. on um, uh you know, the South and the West sides, mm-hmm. and, you know, why don't you tell all the great stories? And we, tr- you know, obviously tried to mix it up with a lot of what makes Chicago so unique, so special. Uh, but we were criticized. Oh, you guys are just, you know, down there in Finger High and the gangs and the shootings and, you know, Chicago's so more, much more than that. And then I look at the two years since we mm-hmm. did that. <laughs> You've just been proven more and more, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything we focus on and of course education and, and the battle over the, you know the future of public education yeah. in Chicago also those were the two main issues right. uh, and they were interrelated obviously mm-hmm. and they've just exploded yeah uh, and uh, I, I feel if the mayor you know the mayor you know is is listen the guy's a, a bright guy mm-hmm. and and he's got some great ideas and 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 he's a doer uh, he makes things happen but he's also got an arrogance uh, and and, and uh, is, is can be abusive in the mm-hmm. way he treats other people, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know the whole attitude he and his uh, his team had. That, you know we don't need to listen to you guys, and you know you're some you know out of towners, and uh, you know just shut up and and basically you know here's what you should do. You know just follow our our our, our line. Uh, and had he listened closer, not just to what the characters in Chicagoland were saying, but the Chicago, you know, what the citizens in Chicago were saying, he might have avoided, mm-hmm. you know, the explosion that happened with this, with the video and yeah. and, and and with the position he's in now. Right. Um, so uh, it's 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 a uh, you know we weren't looking for vindication, uh, and of course uh, Liz Dozier has gone on to start a whole foundation and 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 try to take some of what she learned in, in terms of public education, you know, on a national level to find mm-hmm. best practices around the country, highlight them, amplify them. Mm-hmm. But I feel we were vindicated in, in terms of uh, our focus and obviously the tragic death of Lee under only underscored that mm-hmm. uh, and the pain of that. Um, but when you ask about solutions, there's no snapping of the finger, but, right. but, but certainly, you know, Having um, an elite, uh, whether it's the business elite, the political elite, that is listens mm-hmm. and really uh, is responsive uh, and is not, even sometimes when the elite have the right ideas, mm-hmm. the technocratic solutions. Right. If you don't listen and you don't uh, understand and work with the actual people on the front line, and this is very much the point of that book uh, that's gotten a lot of attention on the future of public education, mm-hmm. and which looked at the whole Newark experience, mm-hmm. is that top-down 
can be doomed, even when it has the right some of the right answers. Right. If you just force them, force feed them mm-hmm. uh, to the citizenry without their participation, without right. their buy-in, without their, 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 their them sensing that you feel them, mm-hmm. uh, it, it can collapse, even if it was the right idea. <laughs> right. Uh, and that was a huge problem in Chicago. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I've interviewed a former Baltimore police officer named Michael Wood, um, and he's talked a lot about how what we need to do going forward is it has to be the citizenry telling the police what they want as opposed to the other direction, because it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's, you know, it, it's it's a lot about the posture of the police, and it's like, you know, maybe what they're saying is right, but the way they do it is so authoritarian and, and top-down that it's, you know, people are resistant to it, whereas, you know, if it's a conversation and, and people feel like they're being listened to or uh, respected in that way, you know, and especially with the militarization, it's like you roll down the street in a, ba- in a Bearcat or an MRAP, it doesn't feel like uh, protect and serve, it feels like you're the enemy and we're out to destroy the enemy, you know what I mean? So, it's very much, you know, it's it's a, you know, it, optics uh, kind of thing, you know, more than anything, I feel like sometimes, you know, even if it's the right idea, it's like you're, you're going about it in such an authoritarian way that people who might listen to you otherwise aren't aren't gonna listen so exactly exactly but well i uh to bring it to a more uh fun place uh, you worked on the series the blues and uh, i know that was uh done by martin scorsese who's absolutely one of my favorite directors so what was it like to work with him oh that was uh that was a kick uh, <laughs> i mean uh i mean you know in terms of marty uh, it was just great that he appreciated uh and kind of i, I think the high point in just our interchange was his uh, voicemail that he left me on uh when he saw the rough cut, mm-hmm. and, and he just got it, right, and, and just so enjoyed it, and uh, just his effusiveness, and you know the guy's so passionate. Oh yeah, uh, that was sensational. But I, but but the lasting relationship was with Marshall Chess. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, to, to be he, he became a friend. His oh family. cool. And yeah, just to get to, plugged into you know the Chess family, and oh, the Chess wow. legacy, and uh, no, that's still uh, that's still very much because uh, that's it was Paul Butterfield that uh, mm-hmm. uh, really as a teenager for me as, as, as a you know 13 year old kid that's kind of what got me opened my eyes to you know where the Beatles and the Stones and right. Clapton where they were all getting their music Muddy Waters Howlin' Wolf that that's that was my awakening as a kid mm-hmm. uh, it was the Chicago Blues that that, that opened me up right uh, so um, that's still very much part of uh, just me closing my eyes and putting on headphones uh, and that was one of the most fun projects uh, I have another one that's been a lot of fun that is going to come out uh, on October 3rd and, and is just played on Martha's Vineyard uh, on Friday and will be in Chicago actually you could see it Oh, cool! Uh, next Tuesday or Wednesday I think it's going to be at the Black Harvest Film Festival oh, awesome. get you the details it's called Class Divide oh. Oh, cool. And it's about um, kind of the uh, hypergentrification, class inequality, mobility, mm-hmm. all these issues, some of which we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But 
is seen through the eyes of kids on two sides of one street corner in Chelsea, Manhattan. Hmm. Uh, not far from, I'm looking out the window here on 26th Street. Uh, it's right on the corner of 26th and 10th Avenue, and on one side of the street you have uh, one of New York's newest uh, elite private schools called mm-hmm. Avenues, the World mm-hmm. School. A lot of, uh, you know, very privileged kids there. And then right across the street is the uh, public housing, uh, the Elliott Chelsea uh, projects. So you've got kids from the projects and kids from, you know, one of the most elite schools. Mm-hmm. And the neighborhood uh, of West Chelsea, where I'm sitting right now, um, is is like the fastest, uh, they're calling it hypergentrification. Mm-hmm. You know, the changes here, the high line has kind of catalyzed this unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, changing of this neighborhood. So it's all about how these kids from two sides of the street see each other and see this neighborhood, which is just changing so fast right mm-hmm. in front of their face. And um, the common ground between the two sides and, and the kids from both sides is... Uh, the anxiety about where they fit in, mm-hmm. to, you know, this this fast changing world. So that right. uh, will be on HBO October third. Oh, very cool! Uh, and uh, you know, we could get you a screening copy, but oh, uh, it will great. also be Daphne, uh, the producer, and one of uh, of the kids that's in it, Hashim, uh, will be at the Chicago screening. Uh, I think it's next Tuesday or Wednesday. Oh, awesome! Well, I can't wait to see that. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Another thing I know that you're. Exactly executive producing that I can't wait to see because I have a two-year-old is the uh, movie Monkey Business about the creators of uh, Curious George. And I read an interview with the director and I was just uh, blown away by the story that uh, the creators of, of Curious George, like they constructed their own bicycles to escape Nazi Germany, <laughs> or the Nazi uh, France rather. Right. When, yeah, just uh, just amazing. It's so. a fantastic story. Emma, uh, who was the editor on uh, Class Divide ah. and who we really started working with on Chicagoland, okay. one of the uh, the editors on Chicagoland. This is her directorial debut, and it's a tremendous story. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, I mean, obviously, we all know Curious George, mm-hmm. uh, but I had no idea oh, what I know. the uh, backstory was, <laughs> and uh, it, it really is an eye-opener. It's a great human story, uh, and I'm very excited about that project. Cool. Well, I absolutely can't wait to see that. Um, well, I've uh, I've taken up a lot of your time here, but one more thing before we go. Uh, what music have you been listening to lately? We always talk about music a little bit. Uh, that is a good question. What have I been listening to lately? Um, you know, it's funny. What I like to do is uh, I, ha- I have not changed my... Um, app, my iTunes app or or whatever it is here because I like to put it on random. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, you know, because there's just something about the free association. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I've been listening. In terms of new, I like Paul Simon's album a lot. Mm-hmm. And this song, Wristband, mm. I think is a classic. Okay. Uh, in fact, I was disappointed he didn't sing that at the Democratic Convention. Uh, he, you know, tried to sing Bridge Over Troubled Waters. His voice is shot. But this song, Wristband, is just so much about all these issues. It's uh-huh. about, you know, the, you know, feeling that you're not 
part of the elite. You're uh-huh. not part of the VIP crowd. And it's right. just a great, it's a great hook. It's a great song. Uh, so I've kind of gotten in, into his album, been listening to the new Dylan album, mm. uh, Love World Music, you mm. know, so, you know, kind of constantly dipping into African music, Molly, you know, you talked about, you know, uh, the Godfathers and Sons, uh, mm-hmm. kind of that, that, a whole series that uh, Marty oversaw got me into listening to a lot of music from Mali, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, you know West African nation where um, you know a lot of the blues ideas came from. Right, right. Uh, so that's something. And then in terms of just really going back, I've been listening to. Um, an Egyptian singer named Um Khatoum, mm. who is the Billie Holiday of uh, uh, the Mideast. Wow. And who I first got turned on to uh, when I was a, a kid uh, and spent some time in the Middle East in the early 70s. Oh, wow. Uh, and kind of rediscovered that. Great. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for uh, taking the time here, and I'll let you know when it's when the episode's out. And I can't wait to see what what you're working on next. So um, let's let's talk again sometime. Okay, Rob, I appreciate all you're doing, and let's stay in touch. Okay, absolutely. And, and, and let me know if you want uh, on Class Divide, we can get you the info. So just send me an email, and uh, I'll send you the details. Or Kara will on the screening in Chicago next week, and if you can't make that, we could get you a link too. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. You got it. Bye. Take care.